Well, good morning, church. Yeah, I uh, have the privilege of serving as a missionary for our state convention. We have 2,350-ish churches across California, and my role is to help our churches win in evangelism. So that's kind of part of what I do on the daily. You guys want to hear some good news? Everyone loves good news, don't we? want to hear some good news. Um, I am so grateful for your church and our other sister churches that all come together to participate in missions, missions giving, uh, being involved. Well, one of the areas that we're doing ministry in California is within mi with migrants. We have a migrant ministry, and we have some 20-some migrant centers up and down California that we minister to these. And these are folks that are usually uh, they're the, the marginalized within our state. For example, we just got gone, going through a pandemic, and the privileges that most of us got to have during the pandemic to stay at home, um, to isolate, a lot of them didn't get that. They still had to go to work, and they're working in the farmlands, and, and, and the COVID affected them probably the most amongst all those in California, and they had to keep right along working. They're marginalized, and, and we minister amongst them. We, uh, we provide food and clothing for those that don't have it, uh, but something else we do is we share the gospel. So we've been doing migrant ministry for quite a while. 2018, 2019, we had about 1,600 decisions for Christ in 2018, 1,722 decisions for Christ in 2019, and then we go into the pandemic, and our migrant centers had to close. We couldn't have the distribution centers for food and clothing like we normally have done. Where our, our migrant workers were scattered, and we had to, so we're thinking, what's this year going to look like for us as we're trying to share the gospel, and we don't have the migrant centers to kind of center all that in? Well, in 2020, we had over 2,350 decisions for Christ amongst migrants. It's great. Our, our migrant team pivoted and uh, still ministered to those. And now we're looking at this year, or sorry, coming in last year, right over 2,600 decisions for Christ among migrants. We actually have now teams going into, uh, into Mexico on the border before migrants come over sharing the gospel with them. So this is one of the areas that... Uh, we have done better together doing, doing ministry and advancing the gospel. All right, so we're going to be in, um, a, uh, uh, in 2 Samuel this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Before we do so, when we come together like this, you came here this morning to elevate God's name, to worship him. You also came this morning because you wanted to meet with God, right? We come and we meet with him. But something else that we do when we come together is we have an anticipation that God is going to, as we reach for him, he reaches for us. He reaches into our heart. He works within us. There's changes that he wants to sometimes make within our life, things he'd like to address. This morning, would you give God permission to address within you things he would like to touch? I believe today's message is going to be applicable to everyone. Whenever God's word is shared, it calls for change, doesn't it? Every single time. So would you with me, can we do that? Let's ask and invite God and give him permission to work within us through his word this morning. Let's do that. Lord, we pray this morning that as we engage with you through your word, that you would be reaching within us and bringing about change, that you would highlight things within us, Lord, that you want us to address. God, we pray that at the end of this morning, we will be transformed differently than we were before we came in. 
So we, Lord, give you permission to deal within us things that you would like to. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So you can turn to or swipe to 2 Samuel chapter 16 is where we're going to begin. Uh, or you can follow along with me on the screen. Uh, before we get there, though, um, many years ago, there were a couple missionaries that went down to South America. And this is before you had really international communications digitally and you didn't communicate. But it was a long, long time ago. They go to South America. They go to an unreached people group. And they spend several years there ministering and creating a lot of Christians, and they form a new church. Uh, and then they end up having to come back to the States after several years. So they come back, and then after they've been back for a little while, they get a letter from this church. And the letter simply said this, We are in desperate need for you to return and to help us. We are suffering from the sin of Ahithophel. And cool, what in the world is the sin of Ahithophel? Well, I think this morning we can dive into answering that question. I think we might be able to learn an incredible story and great principles. 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23 gives us some idea who this guy Ahithophel was. It says, Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was that if one had inquired at the oracle of God, so was all the advice of Ahithophel both with David and with Absalom. So in this verse, we kind of see who Ahithophel was in general. He was King David's godly counselor. And he was such a good counselor, it says that he was like an oracle of God, which is another way of saying prophet. Going to him is as though you were hearing his advice from the mouth of God. He was that good of a, of a godly counselor. We probably all have people like that in our life, don't you? I mean, we, someone that you know, if you go to that person, they're going to give you great godly advice. We tend to have people like that. Well, that's who this guy was for King David. So in kind of asking that, we say, well, what was the sin? Turn over to the next chapter, chapter 17, verse 23. It says, now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled the donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in his father's tomb. So I, I guess the sin of Ahithophel must be suicide. Right? This, this South American community and church must be suffering from some breakout of a lot of suicides, and that's what they needed help with. I guess that's it. We discovered it, right? It, time for lunch? <laughs> There's something missing, isn't there? How do we go from oracle of God, such a godly man, it is though he is the voice of God, to him doing something like this and committing suicide? We're missing something, aren't we? I think we need to dive in a little bit further and discover what else might be going on because it just doesn't fit. 2 Samuel 15, 12 says, Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel the Gilonite, David's counselor. So we have even there, even more, that he, several places, he is known as David's counselor. And not only is he now giving counsel, giving counsel to David, he's also giving it uh, to Absalom. Uh, so now we kind of know where he's from. What about his family? Does he have children? We'll swipe over to 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to be kind of doing somewhat of a Bible marathon, so you can follow along with me. If you're quick with your Bible, get your fingers all nice and warmed up and ready to go, because we're going to be marathoning it this morning. All right, chapter 23, verses 34 through 39. Uh, now, this is a long list of names, and I'm not going to try to read through all of them. I can't, only God and their mother can pronounce most of these names, and I can't do that, but there's a few I want to highlight for you. If you'll take a look at, at verse 34, C, there's a name in here that says Eliam, the son of Ahithophel the Gilonite. 
So if you, if you like to mark your Bibles, or if you're a Bible app and you like to highlight, highlight those names, and then the last one, verse 39, it says, and Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. Now these list of names are known as the mighty men of valor. King David had this military force that were elite. This was like King David, SEAL Team 6. These guys were battle-hardened. They had been through a lot of battles together. They were highly skilled at what they did. They fought side by side a lot, and there's 37 of them. Um, anybody here served during time of war? Got any war veterans? Any? You know, most of those guys don't like to raise their hand. Uh, but my dad was in, uh, in the military. I am fortunate. I got to skip that. My, my great-grandfather served in World War I. My grandfather served in World War II. He was a belly gunner on one of those flying fortresses. And he, he, had, he was a military throughout his entire career. He retired from the military. My dad served also, and he went to Vietnam. Um, and then I got to get skipped. <laughs> I didn't have to go. So uh, thank God for that for me. But, uh, and my dad, if you know someone that's served in, in, in battle, they don't talk about those stories much, right? They don't want to relive that. They, they, those stories are meant for Hollywood, not for actual veterans. They don't like talking about that. My dad didn't like discussing it much either. Um, but I did get to hear a few stories. He ended up passing away because of his exposure to Agent Orange. and had cancer, and it killed him some 20 years ago. But before he died, he was having trouble. He was an um, M60 gunner. It was in a platoon, and it was a two-man crew. He was the gunner, and he had his best friend that he'd been through all of the tour with named Bubba that was his ammo carrier. And they were a few weeks from coming back from their deployment, from finally being able to come home, and this battle breaks out, and him and Bubba are in a foxhole fighting, and an explosion happens, and it kills his best friend. And many years later, he's in his late 40s, he starts having this dream, and he wakes up and sweats, and it's the dream of the flash of that explosion that happened. And his best friend, his, 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 his kind of his, like, family died. Now, even though I've not been in, and you probably have never been there either, we can relate, I think, cognitively to a concept. Is that is, at war, those relationships with those people that you fight with become like family, become tightly knit. Right? We, can, we can grasp that, can't we? Uh, we have shows, the band of brothers, right? there. It's like family, they care about each other, and when the battle breaks out, you're really fighting to save each other's lives, and you become tight like family. I would assume that's what these 37 men are like also. They're tight like family. They know each other. They've fought by each other's side. They have saved each other's lives, and they put their lives in each other's hands, these 37 men of valor. And um, I assume that's much of the kind of relationship they had. All right, now with all of that in mind, let's put some context into this. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11 with me. Now remember the three names that we discussed. And now let's see how it all unfolds in this story that might be, that might be familiar to you. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, 
and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So with all of that, let me ask you, what is the relationship between Bathsheba and Ahithophel? Do you see it? Who's her dad? Her dad is Eliam. Who is Eliam's dad? Ahithophel. This is his granddaughter. Bathsheba is Ahithophel's granddaughter. So how the story unfolds is that David has an affair with Bathsheba, and she gets pregnant. And now David's trying to cover his tracks. He's thinking, what am I going to do? So he sends for her husband, Uriah, to come home early, to come home from the battle early so that he can go home and that he can lay claim to this child. And David then would maybe get out of it. So he sends him home. But when Uriah gets back, he won't go home. His attitude is like, you know, as long as my buddies are out at battle, my brothers, I'm not going to go home and pretend like this isn't happening, sleep in a comfortable bed. It's not going to be me. So he stays at the palace and he guards the palace. David tries again and again to get him to go home and he will not go home. So then David hatches this horrible plan. He writes a letter to the general, Joab, and he says, put Uriah in the heat of the battle and then draw your soldiers back and let him die. And he writes that letter and he gives it to Uriah to take back to the battle with him to give to the general. So he does that, very faithful man, gives it to the general. The general reads it, does exactly what King David told him to do, and Uriah is killed. Then David takes in Bathsheba as his own wife. Um, if they, they didn't have newspapers back then. If they had newspapers back then, I bet an, a, a headline would have said something like this. Amazing King David takes in poor pregnant widow. That would probably be a headline. You know who probably wasn't a headline for? The 37 men of valor. Now, you can't even hardly keep a secret in a church of 500, let alone a group of 37, right? These are men that know each other. They know what happened. Why did we put him there and then draw back? They would have figured all this out. And I'm quite certain at this point in time, early on, Ahithophel would have known what had happened. So the story goes on um, that David is confronted with his sin. But before we do that, let me ask you this. If you were Ahithophel, how would you feel about what your friend just did to you and your family? If it was your granddaughter and it was your trusted friend that you went to church with, that you counseled with, that you cared a lot about, if he did this to your family, how would you feel about him and what he had just done? I mean, he's close friends with David. His granddaughter is taken by David. Her husband, Uriah, is killed by David. What would be going through your mind? And then you might see how maybe the community is praising him for being such a great king and taking in a poor widow. I'm sure he felt deep bitterness and resentment for what had happened to him. And then, so the prophet Nathan finally confronts David about this. And he says, you've sinned. And then David repents of his sin. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's Psalm 51, you can turn there. Um, Psalm 51 is his repentance. But before we get there, their first child the one that, that she was pregnant with, dies. Do you know the name of the second child that was born? Solomon. It means shalom man. It's son of peace. If you're a Hithophel and the child comes along and they're calling it the peace child, that might be maybe cake, uh, icing on the cake of bitterness, right? Let's take a look at David's repentance, though, because he does repent. Psalm 51. Let me just read for you a few of these verses. They're, they're beautiful verses. Verse 2, he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 6, 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then verse 10, I mean, we sing songs about these words. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Beautiful repentance, isn't it? And we know that God forgives David. While you live, there is no distance you can get away from God that grace cannot be offered, right? Even in a horrible thing that David had done, he still found grace and mercy in God. God forgives him. But what about his godly counselor? Well, within the narrative of 2 Samuel and even in 1 and 2 Kings, we don't have any reference to David seeking reconciliation. But I do think we have a clue. I think there's a passage. It's not explicit, so I can't say for sure. But I think this passage that we're about to read is speaking about David and his godly friend Ahithophel. Um, let's take a look at it. It comes from Psalm 55. Psalm 55, verse 12 and 14. David says this, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor does one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. In other words, we went to church together. I believe David goes to Ahithophel and tries to find some reconciliation, and I believe he is rejected. I think Ahithophel is so embittered by what David has done, he is unwilling to forgive him. All right, so now what, now what comes? Well, if you turn to 2 Samuel 17, we'll take a look at the next uh, passage. There's some 10 to 20 years have gone by before we read this. Uh, one of David's sons, because he had many wives, and one of his sons, Absalom, he's really had some falling out with, and Absalom is rising up and kind of leads a coup. He creates this kind of small army just south of Jerusalem and marches into the palace, catches David by surprise. David runs for it. I mean, he, Scripture says he crosses the Mount of Olives without even having sandals on, and he heads out into the wilderness. And many of his soldiers go with him and meet up with him out in the wilderness. So then Absalom, his son, moves into the palace, kind of takes over as king. David's out in the, in the desert wilderness hiding. Um, Ahithophel sees his opportunity for revenge. Take a look at this. Chapter 17, uh, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid, and all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and the elders of Israel. So Ahithophel sees his chance for revenge, and he hatches this. It's a brilliant plan, because here's a problem that Absalom has. If Absalom goes out after David and has a war against David, he's making brother fight brother, and he's going to start being king with all this blood on his hands. He doesn't want that. So he's wondering, what am I going to do? I can't be the legitimate king while David's out in the wilderness while he still lives. And in walks Ahithophel with this brilliant plan. He says, give me 12,000 men. I'll, come, I'll go after him right away. But I won't create a battle. I will kill just David. And then I'll bring home all of his army and your army. And you won't have to start being a new king with all his blood on your hands. People will love you. The moms will love you because you didn't kill any of their sons. You'll be great. You'll be the hero. Brilliant plan. Let me, there's a, a lie that you have been told your entire life. I've been told it my entire life as well. You know what that lie is? Here's, here's the lie. 
Time heals all wounds. No, it don't. <laughs> it doesn't, does it? Look at this case. Did time heal Ahithophel's wounds? No. Time made him worse. He saw an opportunity for revenge to kill David, and now he's trying to take it. Time does not heal all wounds. And there's been about 10, 20 years have gone by, and it, it, it did not heal his wounds. Unresolved bitterness in this man just kept festering and festering. And we sometimes like that statement because we like the idea of, I can ignore it. I can kind of sweep it under the carpet. I don't have to deal with that. So I like that statement that time can heal all wounds because then I can just have to ignore it and just let it go. But that is, that is a lie. It does not, does not work that way. So he goes. He tries to go after David. His counsel is rejected. Another guy comes in, another counselor, and tells Absalom it's not going to work. It might sound great on paper, but David, if you just look back a few years, there was another king, Saul, that went after David and chased him for 10 years and couldn't catch him. It's not, it's not going to work. David's the fox out in that desert. And then his Ahithophel's advice, his chance for revenge, is rejected. And he probably feels rejected in every way, rejected by Absalom, rejected by David. Now probably, most of all, feels rejected by God. 2 Samuel 17, 23, it kind of completes the story for us. Let's turn back to that. Chapter 17, verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and rose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died and was buried in his father's tomb. And that kind of completes the story. He goes from being a man of God, where his counsel was like a prophet, to a person that takes his own life because bitterness has completely consumed him. You know, there's a, a, a verse in, in, in Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, 15, that warns us from letting a root of bitterness take hold within us. You know, I love the way Scripture is so consistent when it explains the inner workings of our life. You look at almost all of the examples that it uses of a garden scene, right? We, uh, we have, um, uh, we have we, he's the vine and we are the branches. Uh, we, we have the, this, the parable of the good soils. Uh, we have um, uh, the, the fruit of the spirit that's supposed to grow within us. So when you take a look at scripture, and this is really relevant. I mean, back then, everyone was involved in some way or another in agriculture. So it was a great analogy to talk about the inner workings of someone's life. But when the scripture looks at it, it says basically we kind of have like this garden within us. And we have all of these things we're trying to produce within our life. And we kind of have like these rows of, of, of crops we're trying to develop. We have the fruit of the spirit that we're trying to, to grow up within us. But then we also have bitter weeds. Someone comes along, you're cultivating your garden, you're trying to be good, and someone comes along and throws some evil, bitter weeds into your garden. And all of a sudden, you get these weeds that are growing up. You know, I believe this area that we're talking about is the most difficult area of sin in our lives to repent of. Because here's the truth. Bitterness that you might feel, it's not your fault. <laughs> someone else came along and wounded you, didn't they? It's someone else's fault. Someone else threw those into your garden. You didn't do that. It's because of them. And we can feel so justified in feeling bitter, can't we? We can enjoy holding a grudge, don't we? <laughs> I mean, I'll speak for myself. I, I do. It's, it's true. We can enjoy holding a grudge. It's almost as though we can build a dungeon within our heart. And then we take the person that has hurt us and we put them in that dungeon and then we like to walk by and see them squirm. Here's the problem though. 
If you build a dungeon in your heart for someone, it is you that is imprisoned, not them. We imprison ourselves. It's kind of like a story of a guy. He had a boss that he did not like. Every time he talked to his boss, the boss would poke him in the chest and poke him in the chest. And it was driving him crazy. He was getting so angry at his boss. He finally said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a stick of dynamite. I'm going to strap it to my chest. And the next time he pokes me, I'm going to blow him up. (laughs) Because the truth is this. Resentment, bitterness, the, the inability to forgive, we become the victim. It hurts us. You know, have you met someone that is long in years, lived a long time, and they are just the sweetest, kindest, most gentlest old person you ever met? You, you know, so you, you probably think of someone I'm talking about right now, don't you? Maybe a little old Betty or who, whatever her name might be. She is just a real gentle, sweet person. I believe one of the keys to finding happiness late in life is being able to deal with bitter roots within your garden. Do you ever meet someone that they are just full of bitterness? They roll out of bed and it seems like they're angry at everyone and everything. That bitterness, I think they have failed. And you go and you look in the garden in their heart and those rows are just overgrown with tons of weeds that have impacted where they have nothing good that grows in there anymore and they're just angry and bitter. I think one of the keys to finding happiness late in life is learning how to master this concept of dealing with bitter roots. And here's also the sad, sad truth. This is, this is sin. Harboring bitterness is sinful. And if we fail to deal with it, Scripture talks about the fruit that we're supposed to develop with peace, joy, love, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. All the things that we develop within us, it feeds those that we love the most. So if you fail and bitterness starts to take root and choke out all the other good stuff, it hurts the people you love the most. Isn't that just a sad, sad thing to see? I really want to master. I don't want to grow up to be an old, bitter person that's angry at the world. I want to be a sweet old man that people like to be around. Don't you? So I think this is a very, very important thing for us to get, for us to master. And it can be so, is there so much easier said than done? Because we can feel so justified. It's not your fault. And here's the truth. Every single one of us, this is an issue that's common for all of us. You live long enough, you're going to have a lot of scars on your heart that's caused by other people. Stuff that you did not do and deserve, but they did. And they would, that, that's, that's the, the condition of our human nature, right? I'm, I'm sinful. There's probably scars on people's heart that I put there just because we as people tend to hurt people. <laughs> and if, but if we don't let this get addressed, if we go by assuming that time heals all wounds and not do anything about it, it's going to take root and grow bigger and bigger and choke out the good fruit within us that we want to give to those around us, to those that you love the most. Because it's so possibly enjoyable holding a grudge. So what do we do with this? Jesus has a recipe for how we deal with hurts and bitterness and those that have wounded us. Let's take a look at the New Testament, Jesus' recipe. Chapter, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 23 and 24, Jesus says this, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and then remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So basically saying if your brother or sister thinks that you're wrong, you go and be reconciled. Now take a look at Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you 
If they listen to you, you have won them over. So if you think your brother has wronged you, you go and be reconciled. Does it sound like they're saying the same thing? They're not. They're saying complete opposites. One verse says, if you think your brother or sister's wrong, they're the ones that have hurt you, you go and be reconciled. The other one says that if you're the one that's wrong, you've hurt them, you go and be reconciled. They're the same outcome, but they're different sides of the same coin, aren't they? The initiative, God is always saying, is on us. Now, we don't, want, we don't like that. We like to think, well, the one that is wrong is the one that should initiate, <laughs> right? They're the ones that did it. They're the ones that should come and say sorry. But that's what God says. He says the initiative for reconciliation is on us, is on me, it's on you. And there's a biblical principle that's this. The stronger always reaches towards the weaker. You know that? And if you're someone that's walking with God and you're trying to do the best, Scripture says the initiative is with you. You seek reconciliation to the best that you can. And I also know that is easily said and done. And the, and the truth is this, that there are some times reconciliation may not be healthy. Someone could be in jail because of how they had hurt you. There may be times you need to talk with your pastor and seek guidance about how you can find reconciliation because sometimes it may not be healthy for you to talk to someone that might have hurt you badly. It may be, so I would say seek guidance and counsel. And that's one of the great things that God's built for you is built a church of people that can come around you. We grow together, don't we? God's not intending for any of us to grow by ourselves. He's brought a community. God's designed us to grow in the context of community. And we grow together. So I would say that this would be an area that would be great to seek some help in. And there's also another truth about it as well. You might say, well, Pastor, it's really easy to talk about this. But I do not have the capability to forgive what that person's done to me. I can't do it. It's too hard. I would like to invite you to witness a miracle. That might sound funny, but here's, here's the miracle. You say you can't do it. You know who can? It's God. Here's a prayer that I like to pray in almost every situation. You can steal this if you want, but it's one that's so applicable to this scenario. My, my, my prayer is this. God, please get involved. Every time I say that prayer, I know the answer is yes. I know God will get involved. If you have an area on someone that has hurt you and that bitterness is hurting your life, you don't want to let that grow old and become an old bitter person and you don't want it to choke out the fruit. You want to deal with it, but it's too hard to deal with it. I bring it to God. He's the one that can. You take it to him in prayer. You ask for God to get involved and say, God, please help me. This is hard. I think in time, you'll be able to witness one of the greatest miracles is that you may someday have no longer bitterness because God has worked within your heart and brought healing. So I would say invite him to be involved. Invite him to come in and help you with that bitterness. Make it a matter of prayer. Invite some other people to come around you and say, I'm dealing with this, that someone's hurt me. Please pray that I can find forgiveness for that. And rid your life of the bitterness that may be choking out good fruit. I know that's so easily said. And like I also said earlier, I think it's one of the hardest areas in our life that we may ever face. And it's one that's common. Every single one of us bears scars on our hearts from people that have hurt us. We all, that's a common thing for us in life. And the older you live, the more you get. There's one last example I want to share with you. One last point about forgiveness from all of this. So when David was running from his son, Absalom, as he was running, there was another man named Shimei 
Shimei was in the family of the previous king, Saul, and I think he felt slighted and hurt the way David became king, blamed David, hated David. So as David's running, he sees his chance, and he goes out, and he's cursing at him. He's throwing rocks at David as he's running away. Well, David has his mighty men of valor, some of those guys with him, and they actually literally tell David, why don't we just chop off this dead dog's head right now? (laughs) David says, no, no, maybe God's going to teach me something through this, and he does not have Shimei killed. So he goes out in the wilderness. A civil war battle does take place. David's army beats uh, Absalom's army. And David is coming back to Jerusalem, back to the palace. And as he crosses the Jordan River, Shimei, who was cursing him and throwing rocks at him, meets him. And he falls down before David and he pleads with David saying, David, please forgive me. I'm sorry for what I've done. And I think it's a genuine repentance. I think David thought so too. David forgives him. He says, okay, you're, you're forgiven, and as long as I live, you will not die by the sword. I, he says, I'm not, I'm not going to hold you accountable for that. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to kill you for what I could kill you for, from what you said and did, but I'm not going to do it. Now look at, we're going to fast forward to the very end of David's life. We're going to look at David's deathbed words to his son Solomon, who's about to take over as king. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 8. Look at what David says. He's speaking to his son giving him some advice. He says, And see, you have with you Shimei, the son of Gura, a Benjamite from Berharum, who cursed me with a malicious curse on the day I went to Mahaman. But he came down to meet me at the Jordan, and I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man and know what you ought to do to him, but bring his gray hair down to the grave with blood. And then, uh, David dies. These are his last words. So here's the last principle that we can learn about forgiveness. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. It is a process. Here's something that, I don't know if you've noticed within your own garden, but within one I hate the garden that something hates what, I hate what happens. You, you finally take out this nasty root that's been growing and choking out. You finally get rid of it. It's like, yes, it's gone. Thank God it's gone. And you wake up the next day and it's right back there again. There's another one growing. Forgiveness is a process. For those that have hurt you the most in life, it's probably going to be a lifelong journey of you having to go back and deal with it over and over again. Because you can forgive someone and the next day you feel, you feel some bitterness towards that person again about how they hurt you or what they did to you, and you start harboring that bitterness all over again. It's a process that for all of us is going to be a lifelong one. So I think my invitation for you today is this. Will you get involved in walking the aisles of the garden within your heart and start pulling out those weeds, start addressing them? I think the process that we go through is the clear biblical one of repentance. If there's bitterness that you've been harboring about someone that's hurt you, I know how it feels you didn't deserve it. It's their fault. It's not yours. But now you got this bitterness within you. I think you bring it before God. You acknowledge it. Lord, this shouldn't be here. I need to get rid of this. I know the benefits of getting rid of it. It's going to choke out fruit that people are, that I love are going to be feeding off of. Please help me get rid of it. And I think you take it to God in prayer and you repent about it. It might be one that is so hurtful, so deep, you're thinking it's impossible to get rid of that. I think you just keep bringing it to God. Keep it making it a matter of prayer. And see what God can do within your heart when you invite him to deal with that. Because honestly, I want every one of us to grow old joyfully. (laughs) To have happiness in our old years. 
to be someone that loves to be around us because we have a garden that's fully bloom and just full of fruit and no weeds choking that stuff out. Would you do that today? Is there an area that maybe, maybe someone here is saying, man, this is, I've been hurt too bad. This is so hard. I can't do it by myself. Well, why don't we all together collectively invite God to help us with this area? And before we do that, though, you know someone that can relate to that more than anyone else? You know who in this world has been mistreated the most unfairly in all of existence? It's been Jesus. He went to the cross and he died because of my sin and your sin. He didn't deserve that. There's no one that has been mistreated more than Jesus has been. So we have a God that can relate. So when you go and say, this is, this is hard, he says, I know what that's like. <laughs> been there. He, he understands. We can relate to that. And we have a God that deeply loves us and wants to have a relationship with you. Maybe today you're hearing a lot of us for the first time and maybe your relationship with God is just an unknown for you. You don't know where you, where you stand or, or you're uncertain of what kind of relationship you have with God. I want to encourage you to talk to one of your pastors. Um, you can talk with me after. You can talk to Pastor Mike uh, about what that would be like and how you have a relationship with God. But it, it basically is done by just an invitation, by asking him to, 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 to forgive your sin. You can't do anything good enough. You can't be perfect. We can't be. As scripture says that you guys are in Romans, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? You're also in Romans. It also says that for the wages of sin is death. But the gift, the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. We have this gift that we've been given that is eternal life. Well, how, how do we get that gift? Romans also says if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the grave and confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It it's comes from belief. So this morning you may be here and saying, I, I, I believe, but I don't know if that's something I have. I'm going to lead in your prayer. That's all you have to do is just say this prayer with me in your heart to have certainty. But I'm also going to pray for us that are dealing with bitterness, that God can intervene in our life this morning as well. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would forgive my sin. I can't earn it. I can't be perfect. But, Lord, you are. I believe that you died on the cross, that you rose from the grave, and that the only way I can come to the Father is by faith in you. So this morning I trust, in this prayer, I trust that you are the one that can forgive me of my sin. I also, Lord, pray that you would help us on a regular basis to deal with painful bitterness from resentment, the, the, the challenge to forgive those that don't deserve it. But God, that's what grace is. We're so thankful you've given that to us who don't deserve it. We pray you would help us to give it to those that don't deserve it either, that we can find forgiveness for them, that we can tear down the prisons within our heart that we want to hold other people captive in, that you would walk the aisles of the garden within our heart, help rid us of bitter weeds and roots that choke out what you want to grow. God, we want to be loving, kind, gentle old people in our old age. And we know, Lord, this is one of the ways to get there. So we pray you would help us to live a life free of guilt, of bitterness. Lord, that we can look more like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.